28th of April, 1961. In a television interview broadcast on West German television, Dr. Hans Globke declares that he had only first heard of the Nuremberg Laws and listened with great surprise when the press and broadcasters announced them. Earlier in the year, in an interview with Die Zeit, he declared something similar when he said, I had not even known that it was intended to pass these laws. Why, after 26 years since the proclamation of the Nuremberg Race Laws, and 16 years after the Second World War in Europe was brought to a close, was Dr. Hans Globke, the man responsible for the name-changed laws of the Third Reich, that stole the names from the Jewish people of Germany and her conquered territories, speaking about the Nuremberg Laws for the first time in a very long time. This is Episode 3, The Laws of Death. It's the 14th of July, 1950. A balding gentleman disembarks from a ship that had departed Genoa almost a month earlier. He arrives on an international Red Cross visa that had been provided to him by a bishop by the name of Alois Hudal. He wears large round glasses pushed high upon the bridge of his nose, and his eyes dart around his new surroundings, the harbour of Buenos Aires. He wears a suit fitting for the frame of a professor, and despite a month in the sea air, his leather shoes gleam in the light. The mustachioed man presents his passport to the immigration guards, who give it a cautious glance. They see that he was born in Bolzano, in the Italian Tyrol. He was born out of wedlock, and only his mother, Anna, is listed on his passport. Also stamped into his passport is an entry visa, in the name of Ricardo Clement. With all the papers in order, he is waved through. First of all, he makes his way to Tucumán province and takes some low-paying jobs. Then in 1952, he returns to Buenos Aires, where he is joined by his family. After a few more low-paying jobs, his luck finally strikes. He starts a job at Mercedes-Benz, where he rises through the ranks and quickly becomes a department head. In 1956, the daughter, Sylvia, of a half-Jewish-German by the name of Lofer Hermann, who had emigrated in 1938 to escape the Nazis' persecution, starts to date a young man by the name of Klaus. Klaus was a boastful young man of a strong, hard-headed nature. He boasted of his father's exploits as a Nazi, recanting tales with pride. Yet he lived with his uncle in Buenos Aires. Sylvia told her father of the young man she was dating and the tales he was telling, and her father in turn told Fritz Bauer, a prominent prosecutor in Hesse in West Germany. Hermann had a feeling that this uncle of Klaus was more than he appeared. Hermann sent his daughter to investigate further, a great risk for anyone in a country littered with Nazis in hiding, but especially for a girl with Jewish ancestry. She was to travel to the home of Klaus to meet with him in the hopes of discovering more of this mysterious uncle. Yet when she knocked upon the door, it was not Klaus who opened, but the bespectacled balding Ricardo, the man who had disembarked from the ship with papers organized by Lois Hudal. Ricardo invited her in, explaining that Klaus was not yet at home, but she would be more than welcome to wait for him. And Julie, 
A short while later, Klaus arrived. However, upon his arrival, Klaus addressed his uncle not as uncle, but rather as father. Hermann passed this information on to Fritz Bauer, who in turn passed it on to the director of Mossad, Issa Harel. A team was dispatched and arrived in Buenos Aires on the 1st of March 1960. Surveillance of the man known as Ricardo Clement continued for seven weeks. For seven weeks, they documented, followed, charted, and observed the methodical life of Ricardo Clement. After much planning and preparation, an eight-man team sprung into action on the 11th of May 1960. As Ricardo Clement stepped from a bus after his working day, one of the team, Peter Malkin, approached and spoke to Ricardo in Spanish. The surprise appearance of this man shocked Ricardo, but there was little he could do. Two more sprung from the dark and the three together wrestled Ricardo Clements to the ground. He was then moved to the floor of a car where, under a blanket, he was hidden. Eleven days later, Ricardo, who had been kept secret in a safe house, was flown drugged and dressed as a flight attendant via Senegal to Israel. At his final destination, a cap was placed upon his head. The capturing team and assembled politicians took a step back and looked at the man they had captured. The Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion, then announced before the Knesset and the world that Adolf Eichmann had been captured. Welcome to Achtung History, a weekly podcast produced by the Berlin Tour Guide and hosted by Simon J. James. This is Series 1, He Who Holds the Devil. Episode 3, The Laws of Death. That was the voice of Hermann Goering, announcing to the press and the world of the creation of the Nuremberg Laws, announced to and passed by the Reichstag on the 15th of September 1935 and published a day later. These Nuremberg Laws, as they became known in reference from where they were announced by Hermann Goering, were to lay the foundations for the framework that would eventually lead to the Holocaust. Since Hitler's early speeches in Munich, where he stood in the beer kellars speaking before steadily growing crowds, the NSDAP had made little secret of its hate of the Jewish people. In Mein Kampf, Hitler's semi-autobiographical 1925 book, a book that he used to outline his political ideology and plans for Germany, 
written in his prison cell at Landsberg, Hitler would write, Here, the Jew, stops at nothing, and in his vileness he becomes so gigantic that no one need be surprised if among our people the personification of the devil, as the symbol of all evil, assumes the living shape of the Jew. The ignorance of the broad masses about the inner nature of the Jew, the lack of instinct and narrow-mindedness of our upper classes, make the people an easy victim for the Jewish campaign of lies. Hitler and his propaganda chief, Dr. Joseph Goebbels, would enact a campaign where the imagery of the Jewish people and the devil would be consistently juxtaposed. On propaganda, Hitler would write, The function of propaganda does not lie in the scientific training of the individual, but in calling the masses' attention to certain facts, processes, necessities, etc., whose significance is thus for the first time placed within their field of vision. All propaganda must be popular, and its intellectual level must be adjusted to the most limited intelligence among those it is addressed to. The function of propaganda is not to weigh and ponder the rights of different people, but exclusively to emphasize the one right which it has set out to argue for. Its task is not to make an objective study of the truth, its task is to serve our own right, always and unflinchingly. As Hitler's popularity grew in Bavaria, Dr. Goebbels took to heart the task at hand to spread the word of Hitler as far and wide as possible, to encompass the masses, and, quote, to call their attention to certain facts. With Goebbels' organization, Hitler would depart on a tour making use of the air for its more direct efficiency than by rail, his speeches attracting large masses where he, Hitler, would lay before the collected people that their problems and the problems Germany was facing were a result of the Jewish people. Even after Hitler had obtained power and consolidated it shortly thereafter, the vile language and use of the Jewish people in his propaganda and the propaganda of Dr. Goebbels and the NSDAP continued. It resulted in the boycott of Jewish businesses of April 1st, 1933, that I spoke of in episode 2. But there was a danger. In the quote from Hitler, he speaks that the intellectual level must be adjusted to the most limited intelligence. The issue was what was to be done about those who were intelligent or had the drive to learn or even tried to decipher the Nazis' rhetoric. Joseph Goebbels on Open Platz. My fellow students, German men and women, the age of exaggerated Jewish intellectualism has now come to an end. And the breakthrough of the German revolution has cleared the German way again. And the coming German person will not only be a person of the book, but also a person of character. And we wish to do this as an educator. Boys already have the courage to look into life's merciless eyes, to unlearn the fear before these gates, to find reverence at the gate again, 
That is the task of this boy. And so you are well advised to entrust the spirit of the past to the flames at this midnight hour. This is a strong, great and symbolic action. An action that is supposed to document all over the world. Here, the spiritual basis of the November Republic sinks to the ground. But from this rubble, the phoenix of a new one will rise victoriously. Joseph Goebbels spoke as books torn from the shelves of the libraries that surrounded Berlin's Openplatz were thrown into the flames of a funerary prior erected at the center of the square. He spoke of the Jew and the German as separate entities, not one of the same, that the Jewish intellectualism had been holding Germany back and restricting the nation. He spoke to the crowds building, his words creating an enemy within the state. It would have to be sooner rather than later that a solution would have to be found to separate the Jew and the German. In the ministerial circular of the Prussian Ministry of the Interior, dated the 26th of July 1935, prepared and commented on by Dr. Globka, it is noted, quote, The Reich government intends to address the issue of marriage between Aryans and non-Aryans within a short time to be generally regulated by law. So not before the conclusion of this regulation, I determine the following. The registrars have in all cases of marriage in which they are known or it can be proven that one person is full Aryan, the other full Jew, to postpone the marriage until further notice. In the commented collection of laws from Judge Roland Freisler and Dr. Ludwig Grauert, Dr. Globke would comment, Legislation that introduces racial disparity as an obstacle to civil rights will soon be forthcoming. Until then, the registrars in the framework circumscribed by the circular of the 26th of July 1935 have to refrain from participating in marriages endangering the racial unity of the German people. Laws were certainly in preparation. Laws that were being fashioned with the help of Dr. Globke's superior, Dr. Wilhelm Stuckart. When Goering stood in Nuremberg, on the 15th of September 1935 and proclaimed the Nuremberg Laws, he was proclaiming the creation of three laws. The first was the Reichsflaggengesetz, the law that once and for all defined the flag of the Reich, not as the black, red and gold synonymous with the Weimar Republic and its supporters, nor of the black, white and red flag of the German Empire that had been adopted again with Hitler's ascent into power. Now the sole flag of the Nazi Reich was the Nazi party flag, the Hackenkreuz or swastika, emblazoned at its center. The second law was to have a far greater impact, the Reichsbürgergesetz. The Reichsbürgergesetz defined who was the subject of the state and what rights they were entitled to. It stated that a subject of the state is a person who enjoys protection of the German Reich and who, in consequence, has specific obligations towards it. It also stated, A Reich citizen is a subject of the state who is of German or related blood, 
and proves this by his conduct that he is willing and fit to faithfully serve the German people and Reich. And it sets out a condition. Reich citizenship is acquired through the granting of a Reich citizenship certificate, and that the Reich citizen is a sole bearer of full political rights in accordance with the law. The second of the race laws, Gesetz zum Schutze des deutschen Blutes und der deutsches Ehre, or the protection of German honor and German blood, was to have much farther reaching consequences. It opened, moved by the understanding that purity of German blood is the essential condition for the continued existence of the German people, and inspired by the inflexible determination to ensure the existence of the German nation for all time, the Reichstag has unanimously adopted the following law, which is promulgated herewith. The articles that followed forbade marriages between Jews and citizens of German or related blood. Marriages that took place against this law were invalidated, even if they took place abroad. Even the extramarital relations between Jews and Germans were forbidden. But who was responsible for the law? The third article of the Reichsburger Gazette solved this issue. It was then the duty of the Reich Minister of the Interior to issue the legal and administrative orders required to implement and complete this law. So the law was incomplete, and the definition of the Jew had been left specifically vague. How could a law that separated the Jew and the German racially be implemented if there was no specification as to who qualified as a Jew? The first ordinances to try and clarify in the eyes of the law who constituted a Jew were published on the 14th of November later that same year, 1935. A law that in the television interview of April 1961, Dr. Globke admitted helping to craft and create. The decree clarified that a Jewish half-breed was someone who is descended from one or two full Jewish grandparents, a full Jewish grandparent being defined as someone who belonged to the Jewish religious community. A full Jew is defined as being descended from three fully Jewish grandparents. However, if descended from just two Jewish grandparents, a person would be considered a full Jew if they belonged to the Jewish community upon the enactment of the law, were married to a Jew at the time of the adoption of the law, or afterwards married one, and a child would be considered a full Jew if they were born out of wedlock after the 31st of July 1936, as a result of the extramarital relations with a Jew. The law on marriage between a German and a Jew was extended. Now Jews with only one Jewish grandparent couldn't marry a, quote, German or similar. In explanation as to what constituted a Jewish household, it was explained that a household was considered Jewish if a Jewish man was considered the household leader or belonged to the household. It was in the same ordinance under section 4 which verbally and clearly stole the Jewish German's rights from them. It said, quote, A Jew cannot be a Reich citizen. He is not entitled to a vote in political issues. He cannot hold public office. It was also this section that would force all Jewish people who held public office to retire at the end of the year. It is also important to note that in the time frame between the announcement of the Nuremberg race laws and Dr. Globke's circular of the 14th of November 1935, he had also managed, according to Minister of the Interior Frick's letter to Rudolf Hess, Deputy Führer, 
of the 25th April 1938 to contribute to and help with the crafting of the law for the protection of the hereditary health of the German people, a law that forbade marriage to those who carried a hereditary disease or a disease that could be passed to the other part. If one suffers from a mental disorder, that seems undesirable to the people. Dr. Globka and the Reich's Ministry of the Interior's crusade to subjugate and persecute the Jewish people within Germany was relentless. Later in the same year, on the 21st of December 1935, a second ordinance for the Reichsburger Gazettes was issued, which clarified the meaning of public office. Then in March 1936, Dr. Globka and Dr. Stuckart worked closely together to clarify their ideas further. Together, they released Volume 1 of their comments on the German racial legislation. It was this commentary that became the expanded basis for the interpretations of the Nuremberg Laws. So well regarded was their work that Judge Roland Freisler would state in the journal German Justice, dated 3rd of April 1936, that the commentary should not be in absence in any library of a justice. The Becksche publishers wrote, it gets its special meaning in that it comes from two authors officially involved in the racial legislation of the state, Secretary of the State, Dr. Stuckart, and his close associate, Senior Government Counselor, Globka. It will be interesting for every Volksgenossen, the party authorities, courts, registry officers, and health departments as a valuable and authoritative guide. In the ministerial blatt, the significance of the work by Dr. Globka and Dr. Stuckart was recognized, and the impact it was to have started to become clear, as it reads, both authors were officially involved in the establishment of the racial law, and are therefore primarily relied upon for their interpretations. The basic explanatory work will be shared by all Volksgenossen, the party authorities, authorities, courts, registry officers and health departments, and provide a valuable service. The commentary was to go far and wide, and shape the ideas of those within the state in regards to the Jews. So what did their commentary actually say? Within the introduction, they write that blood and race for both people and state is an essential component of the National Socialist worldview. They continue to write under the title, The Problems of the Jews and the Mixed Race, that since Judaism is alien in its blood and innermost nature, according to Germanism, tensions between the two are a necessary consequence. They continue to say that the so-called Mischling, or one with mixed blood, is a danger to German blood, and therefore the security of the German people, and that the Nuremberg Laws create a clear divorce between Germanism and Judaism. They then use an interesting word, Modus vivendi, a coexistence, that they say is fair to all. It is hard to imagine how either thought that the stripping of Jewish people's rights, relinquishing them of their citizenship, forcing the Jewish public servants from their jobs and their heritage was to be fair to all, especially when they finish the paragraph with their, the laws that is, basic meaning is that they prevent the penetration of further Jewish blood into German national body for all future. And later they state, the Jewish problem is not just of racial biology. A solution is needed for the centuries in political, economic, and sociological terms. 
Dr. Globka's later claims made to West German television that he pushed for the most lenient or diffused the application of the racial laws appear self-protective. The laws and commentaries of his past speak otherwise. His laws were carefully considered to not allow for exceptions. If a full German marries a Jewish person and converts to join Judaism, their grandchildren would be considered as fully Jewish, to which he writes, a rebuttal is not allowed. He would also argue over the internal struggle of the blood, stating if a first-degree Mischling marries a Jew, he proves that the Jewish blood is stronger and they should be treated as a full Jew. Sexual intercourse was redefined to as limit extramarital relations. Now sexual intercourse included verb-like actions, such as kissing. Those who fell foul of the racial laws and their commentaries were treated with the greatest disdain and subjected to horrifying punishment. At the trial of Dr. Globker in 1963, the court heard the testimony of witness Hoot. Hoot had been sent to the Sachsenhausen concentration camp as an inmate under protective custody, where he met 76 inmates who were in the camp because of racial shame. They had to sew onto their shirts a black border. This meant that they were a race defiler, and over the subsequent days, the inmates were hounded to death on the roll call grounds. 75 died within the week from beatings and mistreatment. One, who the SS guards had thought was dead, survived long enough for the inmates to drag him to the hospital, where he later died after a few days. It would also appear that the later statements of Dr. Globka, when he stated that he did his most to help those Jewish people in need, would also appear to be a fabrication of the truth. Gertrude Fitzner wished to go to university, yet her mother was considered Jewish. Despite the support of the local NSDAP leadership to allow her to attend, when a formal request was submitted to the Reich's Ministry of the Interior and passed across Dr. Globka's desk, it was declined. The initial wording of the denial, das ich, or that I, was crossed out in favor of the more ambiguous, der RMDI, meaning the Reich's Ministry of the Interior. It didn't even matter that a Jewish person, Paul Weidt, had helped NSDAP party members escape Austria after the ban on the party in 1933, when it came to his request to be exempt from the marriage law, as he wished to marry a non-Jew. His fiancée was forced to state that she had no intention of marrying him when she was threatened with her father losing his job as a headmaster. Upon appeal, Dr. Globka would write, I have no reason to do anything in your marriage permit matter. Signed, Dr. Globka. Paul Weidt would end up in Theresienstadt concentration camp, which he was fortunate to survive. The cases would stack up of Jewish people wishing to marry their loved ones. Loved ones who they were equal with before the ascension to power of the Nazis, but who were now not even second-class citizens. As to be a second-class citizen, you had to be a citizen of somewhere, which the laws that Globka helped create and expand upon stole from them. Some were threatened to end their relationships altogether. Some, like Egon Schubert, a Jewish Mischling, stood tall before the Supreme Court of the DDR in 1963 at the trial of Dr. Globka and recanted how Dr. Globka instructed the district president of Schneidermull to give a negative decision in the request for Egon Schubert to marry his fiancée. After fighting for the Wehrmacht and receiving the Iron Cross second class, he was told to end his relationship altogether or as the letter he received stated, expect the strictest of state police measures. 
The court documents of 1963 speak of a witness R, whose husband had managed to flee, but herself and her son, who was regarded as Jewish, had not been successful. She sought the help of a Dr. Schutzer. He told her to request help from Dr. Globka. When she visited Dr. Globka, Dr. Globka asked if she had divorced her husband, which she answered no. He remarked, Then you stick with the Jew. You should have thought better of that. Do not imagine that your son can still be saved by a divorce. As time progressed, the laws got stricter and stricter. On the streets, signs would be erected stating Juden verboten, or Jews forbidden. In the Ministry of the Interior, laws would be passed limiting the use of public facilities like spas and bathing facilities to the Jewish population. Still, Dr. Globka continued on with his work and used his own initiative. He wished for ways to end the camouflaging of the Jewish people even further, finding ways to identify them with greater ease. In one case, he telegrammed Bern on the 17th of September, 1938, suggesting that all German passports for Aryans have the words valid for Switzerland, meaning those without these three words would be Jewish. However, someone else had already thought of an even cruder solution. The passports of Jews were stamped with a large letter J in red across the information page. Visible identification was now becoming a priority. It was on the basis of the Reich citizenship law and the protection of German honor and German blood law that created the legal foundation and thus the legal persecution of the Jewish population of Germany and later of the territories occupied by the Third Reich. Dr. Globke's commentary on the laws found its way across the German Reich. It was deposited in the libraries of not just lawmakers, but ministries and departments. On the 31st of January 1942, the laws of Dr. Globke also found themselves being referenced in a secret communique. The communique begins, the evacuation of Jews to the east, which has recently been carried out in individual areas, represents the beginning of the final solution of the Jewish question in the Old Reich, the Ostmark and the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia. It later states, In the course of this evacuation campaign, all Jews in accordance with Section 5 of the First Ordinance to the Reich Citizenship Law of the 14th of November 1935 can be recorded. It ends on behalf of Adolf Eichmann. Achtung, Achtung! Hier ist die Sendestelle Berlin im Boxhaus auf Welle 400 Meter. Meine Damen und Herren, Achtung, Histories, he who holds the devil is a weekly podcast production by The Berlin Tour Guide and hosted by Simon J. James. To find out more, follow Achtung History on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Achtung History or visit the website at theberlintourguide.com forward slash Achtung History. If you wish to support Achtung History, you can do so through patreon.com forward slash Achtung History. Achtung, Achtung.